uh, I, it just, uh, I don't know that you could sing this song anywhere and it not fit somewhere in, the, in our faith because it has everything to do with our faith. But it <clears throat> the gulf that separated me from Christ my Lord. It was so vast the crossing I could never ford. From where I was to his domain, it seemed so far. I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. He came to me. He came to me when I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. He came to me when I was bound in chains of sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. He picked me up and drew me gently to his side. Where today in his sweet love I now abide. He When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me.
Isn't that a great song? What a tremendous message that has. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. Turn over to the book of Psalm, chapter 34 again. I say Psalm chapter 34 again because we've been in it a couple of times as we are in the midst of our For His Glory series. And again, our theme this year is For His Glory. And so we're doing a series of lessons, messages, if you will, on that issue. Psalm chapter 34, verse 3. The Bible says, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Again, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Again, we said that God deserves His proper place in our lives. That He deserves to be first. He deserves to be number one. He deserves to be at the top of the food chain, if you will. And we said that to glorify God, or that word glory has to do with primarily, or should I say signifies an opinion. It's, it's an estimate, or I guess, it's, well let me just read it because I'm messing it all up. He says, glory to seem, it says primarily signifies an opinion, estimate, and hence the honor resulting from a good opinion. So it's again signifies an opinion, an estimate, and hence the honor resulting from a good opinion. So when we're glorifying God, what we're doing is exalting the opinion of someone toward God. And so we want everyone to see God as big. We want everyone to see God as the best. We want everybody to see God lifted up, elevated, and glorified. And that's the purpose. That's the reason why we exist as believers. That's the reason why we exist as men, mankind. That's the reason why we exist as a church, to bring glory to God. And so we learn from Scripture that we exist for His glory, that we were created even for that. In Isaiah 43, 7, the Bible says, Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. Every one of us were created for the glory of God. Everything we say, everything we do, everything involved in our life ought to elevate, magnify, exalt the opinion of others toward our God. Now again, we can't add to God's glory. But we can show it off. We can reveal it. And so the psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. A few weeks ago, we began to consider ways in which we can glorify the Lord in our lives. We said just a few weeks ago, we need to die to self for his glory. And we don't have time to go through all of that or to repeat it or even summarize it, but we said to die to self for his glory. Well, this morning... I'm going to continue in our series, and I'm going to address this topic. Delight to serve for His glory. Delight to serve for His glory. So before we get started, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to meet with us. Teach us something today that we can take with us and apply to our lives, even this morning. Father, we come to you. Thank you for this time together and for all these that have gathered. Lord, we... Uh, are grateful for those that have come and joined us for the first time today. We're thankful, Father, for those that are so faithful and consistent week in, week out. For those that are out sick, that are struggling right now for whatever reason, we pray, Lord, that you would just touch their bodies, you'd encourage their spirit. 
May they know, Lord, that our prayers are with them. Father, we know that their heart and their prayers are with us. Father, for we who have gathered here today, may we not leave here the same as we came. May we realize, Lord, that the Word of God is true and that, Father, you have something unique and special for us from it. May we now have open hearts to receive gladly your Word. May your Holy Spirit drive your truths home in our hearts. Lord, again, may we leave different for having come. Be glorified in this service, all of it said and done, in Christ's name, amen. First of all, before we move into our subject, before we discuss the fact of delighting to serve, we need to realize that service is expected of a believer. It's expected. First of all, we have the example of our Lord. Over in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 42 through 45, the Bible says, But Jesus called them to him, referring to his disciples, and he saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The fact is, is that a couple of the disciples had gotten together and they decided that they wanted to be top. They wanted to be first. They wanted to be at the right and left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And then their mama even stepped in and started helping out. She said, hey, wait a second, I got two good boys, and I want both those boys to be at the top of the, the, the food chain. I want, I want one on the right and one on the left. And boy, I'll tell you what, the disciples, the other guys, they didn't like that a whole lot. They got a little bit upset with these two. And Jesus calls them all together, and he makes the statements that we just read now. He says, listen, you want to talk about being a leader, you want to talk about being up front, you want to talk about being on top, so to speak, and out in, in the lead. He says, you want to be the real, the greatest in the kingdom, you really want to make an impact, you really want to influence, then you be the greatest servant you can possibly be. And he goes on to say, or to use himself, I should say, as an example, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Ultimately, you and I both know that he ended up on a cross called Calvary. He shed his blood, he died, was buried and rose again the third day, and he did that all to serve you and to serve me. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest example of a servant that we have anywhere in the universe. He is God made flesh, and he came to earth. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on Calvary, shedding his blood, sacrificing himself for you and I. And you know, the Bible teaches us today that you and I have the wonderful example of the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant. And we can see his life and we recognize our responsibility as a result of it. But not only do we see his example, but we see the expectation of our Lord. The expectation. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, For they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols. It didn't stop there, though. You turned, ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. When a man or woman comes to Jesus Christ, when they make their decision to accept the sacrifice of Calvary as their payment for sin, the moment that they permit Jesus Christ into their life, they're inviting him onto the throne of their life, they turn from their idols, they turn from their sin, and they look to Jesus Christ, their Savior, and they follow him in service. 
That's exactly how it ought to be. Sadly enough, it seems today that many people who profess the name of Jesus Christ have made a decision, a conscious decision, to reject Jesus Christ in their daily walk in life. That's a sad testimony. That is not what God intended for the believer. As a matter of fact, what took place in Thessalonica with these Thessalonians is exactly what ought to take place in your life and mine. When we come to Christ and we receive Him into our life, we turn from those idols that we once served and we begin to serve the living and true God, Jesus Christ. Seeing that our service is expected, how should we serve then? Well, we ought to serve delightfully. And this morning, I want to share three thoughts concerning service or serving that will enable us, so to speak, to delight to serve for His glory. So here we go. You ready? Here's number one. We need to serve with a smile. If we're going to delightfully serve, let's serve with a smile. Phyllis Diller. Some of you may remember Phyllis Diller. She had a lot more hair than me. And she was a comedian or whatever, and she was really good at it. She, she, I mean, my parents would watch uh, Red Skelton. They'd watch Phyllis Diller years ago. I don't know. Some of you don't even know who I'm talking about. I don't really know either, but my parents told me about it. But anyway, old Phyllis Diller, she made this statement. She said, a smile is a curve that sets everything straight. Isn't that good? A smile is a curve that sets everything straight. Boy, I like that. I mean, I don't know if you've been in situations where people have been a little bit upset, and you bring a smile into the, the fix or into the, to the equation, often it makes a big difference. A smile is hard to be angry at. But a smile is a curve that sets everything straight. Charles Gordy made this statement. No, I don't have a clue who he is, but it's a good statement. A smile is an inexpensive way to change your looks. A smile is an inexpensive way to change your looks. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I look over a lot of people through my, my ministry and my years, and, and I can tell you, I can look at people and think, man, they are miserable. All I have to do is look at their face, and it just oozes. Listen, if you're at work like that, your boss can tell, friends can tell, co-workers can tell, family can tell, your children can tell, your husband and wife, they can tell. They can see it all over your face. And let me tell you something, people that go around frowning all the time, people that always have such a serious look on their face, are not perceived as friendly people. A smile does wonders for your countenance and for your looks. You don't have to have a facelift. You need a smile. You don't need a tummy tuck. You need a smile, probably. I'm telling you, we need some things in our lives. One of them's a smile. I like this one. This is just anonymous. I just read this somewhere. Everyone smiles in the same language. That's a good one. Everybody smiles in the same language. I've been to Germany. I've been to Mexico. I've been to the Philippines. That's probably about it. No, I've been to France. I've been to France. I've been at the top of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Pretty impressed, aren't you? (laughs) 
Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter where you smile in the world. Everybody understands a smile. I don't care if it's over in, you know, highfalutin, you know, part of town or whether it's the the least part of town. It doesn't matter if it's in uh, this nation or that nation, this country, that country. It doesn't matter if it's on the heels of a terrorist attack or at the end of an economic collapse. People understand a smile. And it always makes a difference. Serve with a smile. It'll go a long ways to glorifying your Lord. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Boy, a smile does a lot to let them see Jesus in us. I think of Solomon. Turn, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 10. It's interesting. Solomon and some of his servants give us a good testimony in this area. I want to look at this very briefly. But notice in 1 Kings chapter 10, if you have your Bible today. If you don't, that's fine. You can just listen as we read along. 1 Kings chapter 10. Notice what it says there, beginning in verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, I think that's interesting, first of all, right there. Notice the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. That means that it wasn't just his fame. She had heard about his fame, but she also knew the source that he claimed it came from. Isn't that good? Now notice that she came to prove him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train. Not talking about, you know, the overnight express or anything like that. We're talking about people following her. Okay? Camels, uh, wise men probably, different people, servants, that kind of thing. And uh, came with a very great train with camels that were, uh, bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. That was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, the sitting of his servants, the attendants of his ministers and their apparel and their, his cupbearers and his uh, ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom, howbeit I believed not thy words, the words, until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me, thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Well, I'll tell you what, we see the thorough testing that took place. First of all, in verse 1, the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, as we said, but then she came to prove him with hard questions. He said, I want to see this for myself. I have heard about the fame of Solomon. I've heard about how his great wisdom, about he didn't cut that baby in half. I mean, he really had it going there that day. And I mean, I've heard about all these stories and all these successes that he has and all this wealth and all this wisdom. I want to see it for myself. I want to ask him my own questions. I want to get his insights and his understanding. And so she went herself and she made a thorough test of it. But then we also see the tremendous testimony that she went away with. 
and that she saw firsthand. In verse 4 again, it said, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and their cupbearers and his ascent when she went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. What's he saying? Man, she looked at that thing. She said, man, this is unbelievable. I can't even believe what I'm seeing here. I've heard about it. I've even tried to imagine it in my mind. I just couldn't imagine that it could be even as good as I'd heard. But it's better than I heard. And she stood in awe as she viewed Solomon's wisdom and wealth. But I like this. I want you to see the true treasure in verse 8. She goes on to say, Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. I understand the queen of Sheba had seen this great leader, had experienced his wisdom firsthand. And I know that she's saying, you know, anybody that gets to spend any time with him is blessed indeed. I understand that. But i got to believe that those servants were, as the Bible also says, happy to serve this man. This man was such great wisdom and wealth. I believe he was a man that when you served with him, you were happy to serve him as your master. Now listen, I, I, I know we can turn this, we can twist it, we can say a lot of things. But I am confident, I believe today, that Solomon's servants were happy. I don't believe they went around with frowns on their faces. I don't believe they looked like they had this big burden to bear. I believe they stood straight and tall. And I believe that they served their master with great attitudes, tremendous spirits, and with a great smile. And the Queen of Sheba saw this. I think she stood by and thought, man, I wish I could get my servants to serve me with such vigor. I wish they would be so fired up and encouraged to serve me like that. I want to have a little bit of what Solomon's got. I want servants that serve me with a smile. And let me tell you, God in heaven today is the greatest of all masters. And he wants us to serve him with a smile. And he deserves to be served with a smile. I believe those smiles impressed her in a very profound way made a tremendous difference in her life. And we too need to delightfully serve our master. The queen of Sheba is like many in the world. They're searching for something real. They've heard of this sect called Christianity and they've heard their great claims concerning their God. But it won't be our claims that will impress them. It'll be our conversation, or as we would say, our life and our lips. It'll be our actions. It'll be our deeds. It'll be those smiles on our faces. People don't want to join or be a part of something or someone if there's no joy. In the midst of our service, we must serve with a smile for His glory. And serving with a smile always glorifies God. Number two, number two, we need to suffer with a song. Suffer with a song. See, no matter how much we would like to avoid it, there will be times when serving will invite suffering. Can't get around it. When you serve, you will suffer from time to time. 
just the way it is. When I served in the military, I can tell you this, it wasn't always peaches and cream. Carrying around a big backpack on your back, doing a 20-mile march, there was nothing fun in my mind about that. It wasn't long into my march or into that march that those straps would begin to dig into my shoulders and my head would start to throb. I hated carrying those packs. I hated it almost as much as I hated walking 20 miles at one time. I hated when we would set up camp and we'd take those little tent halves and click them together, snap them together. And I'd have to crawl in that little teeny tent. I had half of it and my buddy would have half of it and we'd have to put it together and have to crawl in there. Man, shoulder to shoulder, sleeping on the ground, snow, rain, sleet. That was not fun. Now, maybe you enjoyed it. I hated it. Man, give me a warm bed. Right now, I went out the other day, and I bought me, I'm telling you, my room gets so cold. Before I go to bed, it's freezing. I could swear I see my breath. My wife says that I'm making that up, that I'm delusional. I don't believe it. But anyway, I ran out, and I got me one of those electric blankets. I turned that bad boy on high. I lay stuff on top of the blanket even so that it gets really hot. And I jump in and I'm like, yeah. Man, I like it. I feel like Stevie Wonder. Man, I'm enjoying that, man. I'm liking that. I like to be comfortable. I'm, I don't know about you, but I don't really, I don't enjoy suffering. But when you serve, you're going to suffer. When you, when you serve other people and you serve the God of heaven and you can't serve God without serving others, sometimes it hurts a little bit. They'll disappoint you. They'll, they'll let you down. Sometimes even they'll say things or do things that are out of character even for them and you think, what in the world's going on? You'll have to maybe sacrifice some of your own finances. You'll sacrifice your time. You'll sacrifice your energy. You give yourself to people and you give yourself to God and it costs something. You're serving with a smile, but you need to be willing to suffer with a song. Because in the end, the goal is what? For His glory. Look, if you will, at Acts chapter 16, verse 22. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. We're going to read a few passages, a few verses here as we look at Paul and Silas. Some of you may already know the account, but what a wonderful account it is. It's worthy of being repeated in Acts chapter 16. You know what one of the most wonderful things about the Bible is that it's true. Isn't that great? Everything you read in the Bible is true. I didn't say that it's always the truth, but it's true. What I mean by that is, watch this. See, a man may be recorded lying in the Bible, but the account of his lying is true. It happened. 
It doesn't mean that everything that's said is truth. See, the devil, the devil wants to be first. He may make statements, you know, that he's the God of this world and all that good stuff. Well, we know that he is the God of this world. The Lord tells us that, but he's not God of the universe. There's all kinds of things the devil wants us to believe, and there's things in the Bible that are said that may not be exactly 100% truth. I could say today that I am God. And if that was recorded in the Bible, would that be a true statement? No, I'm not God, but it is the truth. And the Word of God always contains the truth. Always. Everything you read in it, everything you read in it is true. You never have to question or doubt what this book says. You say, well, I, there's all these versions. No, you don't have to question all that junk. You come see me about that, you're confused. You see your adult Bible class leader, they should be able to help you with that. If they can't, you come see me. But let me tell you something. This book's God's Word. And it is perfect, it is without error, and it is the Word of God. True. It's true. And I love it. Watch this. This is true. What we're going to read actually happened exactly the way it was recorded. This is not fabricated. It's not exaggerated. It is truth. Acts 16, verse 22. And the multitude <clears throat> rose up against them, together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, that, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakened, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Wow. Now that's a big change of things. I mean, you talk about something miraculous. To me, that's pretty miraculous. We see here the painful stripes. In verse 23, the Bible tells us, when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison. Why did they cast them into prison? Why did they lay those stripes on them? Because they were preaching the gospel. What had really happened was there was a young woman there that had a demon and she was really very helpful to the uh, sale of these idols that were running around. And she was a very, uh, she created a lot of income for her, her boss, so to speak. And as a result of that, when she had the demon 
removed. She no longer participated in the work she was doing, and they got ticked off about it, and they went to the people and created a big mess on behalf of Paul and Silas and got everybody angry at him and said, listen, these guys are peddling this false doctrine. These guys are making up all these stories. These guys don't have a clue what's going on. They're messing up our culture. They're changing our, our, our ways. We don't want them around. And so, boy, they gathered them up together, threw them into the prison. Before they did, they, I mean, they just went off on them. And in this, the Bible says they laid many stripes upon them. They beat them. They, 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 they whipped them, cast them into prison, cha- charging the jailer to keep them safely. The painful stripes. Again, do you see that? You're serving the Lord. What did he get for? What did Paul get for serving Jesus Christ? Some stripes. Wow. Mm. Suffering in service. You say, I'm, I'm not going to do that then. No. It's a choice you'll make. But remember, there's an eternity. It's not just about this life. Nonetheless, the painful stripes. B, see the pitiless stocks. Can you imagine? You just got whipped. I mean, you've been serving the Lord. You're trying to do the right thing. And these guys make up these lies about you. And just because you affected their income, they're all ticked off at you. They throw you in. They whip you. You got your backs bloody and beaten. Who knows what they did otherwise? I mean, they may have beat them up as well. And then they turn around and throw them in the stocks. They take their feet and they lock them in stocks so that they can't move. They're stuck in one place. Securing them in the inner prison. No mercy. Pitiless. But then we notice the praise-filled songs. Isn't that amazing? These guys, these painful stripes, these, this, these pitiless stocks... All of a sudden, here they are, praising the Lord in song. That's really an amazing thing. Notice it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So what was the outcome? How did it all turn out? You say, well, of of course, an earthquake. Well, that was memorable, yes. But hold on. That's not a significant as the jailer's response in verse 30 through 34, though. Look what happens in verse 30 through 34. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He ultimately, they give him a brief synopsis of the gospel. I'm sure that maybe in real time, it may have even been a little bit more thorough. I don't know. But what's recorded for us is the very basis of salvation. Very basic. Notice it says very simply this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Believe on, the, on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. No, don't just believe. Because you can believe in a lot of people. You can believe in a lot of things. You need to believe specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this jailer obviously did. And that's what's going on. That's what's really taking place. The jailer and his family were all saved. I can only imagine that after that beating that they took, after their feet were placed in the stocks, come midnight, this jailer's thinking, man, these guys are singing songs and praises to their God. This is an amazing thing. I can't even believe what I'm hearing. And man, when that earthquake did happen, he thought to himself, I need to die now because all my prisoners just left. Back in Romans' days, that was very normal. If you were tasked to watch over some guards and they happened, I mean, uh, over prisoners, and one of them escaped, you took your own life. You did, it, was a, it was a disgrace. You didn't wait for somebody else to do it. You did it yourself. 
So here he is, ready to take his own life, fear, fearful that these men had escaped. Here they are. No, 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 don't do that. What must I do to be saved? I need a God like yours that can cause you to sing after you've had many stripes. That can cause you to sing after you've had your feet in the stocks. I need a God like that. I need a God that offers me hope in the pit of despair. I need a God who's there to meet my need when my heart's so heavy, I feel like I'll be crushed by the weight of it. In the midst of our service, we'll suffer. And when we do, we must suffer with a song for His glory. That means there has to be something inside bigger than what's outside. That means there has to be joy in the depths of our being. That means that there's hope even when everything seems hopeless. That's where the song comes from. Here, not here. When people see that song and hear that song, it'll be for his glory. Finally, number three, number three, not only must we serve with a smile, suffer with a song, we need to strive with a strength. Strive with a strength. Again, in the midst of our service, we will strive. And when we do, we must strive with strength. I think of, and again, I use this example all the time because I love it so much, but I think of David and Goliath. I love that story, that account. It's not really a story, it's an account. Because again, remember, the Bible's true. In 1 Samuel chapter 17... Verses 23 through 24, the Bible says, And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. Remember, David's father had sent him to check on his brothers and to take them some food. They had been there at the battle. Check on your brothers, see how they're doing. He arrives there, the Valley of Elah. On the one side, Israel. On the other side, the Philistines. David finds his brothers and he brings the food that was sent him by his father. And as he's there, as he's there, I mean, while he's there, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, shows up. And he spake, the Bible says, according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. I mean, David, this young fellow, I mean, he sees these men, men of war. I mean, they've got their, their, all their, their uh, shields and their swords, and, and they've got all of their armor even. And they flee, they run from Goliath. David's like, what in the world's going on? He listens to the blasphemy of this Philistine. He goes on to say, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? Talking about our God the way he is. His brothers, his brother and, all the, and many of the other men there, they start to accuse him of being just simply a prideful young man. Huh. Oh yeah, David. 
I know uh, you left all those little sheep over there, that little bit of sheep you had there to come up here to the, to the, uh, to the battle just to see it. You're so prideful, David. You're so arrogant, David. Who in the world do you think you are anyway? David responds in a way that is historical. You say, how do I know that? Because it's been recorded. Verse 29 says, and David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? What have I done wrong, brother? What have I done wrong, army of Israel? All I said was he's a big mouth and he needs to go down. I don't see any of you stepping up. I guess I'll have to do it. Hmm. But you're just a boy, David. You're not even, you, you, you don't even know what war's about. And he's been a man, a man of war from his youth. You don't even stand a chance, the king of Israel said. But interestingly enough, he let him go. I mean, he's standing before King Saul. This is what amazes me. Who, by the way, was a head taller than the other men. Because if you go back when he was enlisted as king or made king or anointed king, he said he was a head taller. That means he's taller than all the men. So he was bigger than all the other men. Here's little David now, again, King Saul, and here he is talking to him about, I'm going to go out there and fight this Goliath. That's amazing to me. And David said to Saul, this is great, to the king he says this, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Now that just makes no sense to me. Here's King Saul, a head taller than all the other men, chosen partly for his stature. And here's little David. And he says to him, let no man's heart fail because of him, king. Don't be upset, king. It'll be all right. I, thy servant, will go and fight with this Philistine. Oh, what a slap in the face that had to be to a king. That's amazing, but he let him go, didn't he? He let him go. First Samuel, turn there if you would, if you haven't already. First chapter 17. Now let's pick up with this. And we're going to make some application, then we're going to close this thing down. First Samuel chapter 17. Verse 45. So Saul tries to put his armor on David. David says, listen, I haven't tried this stuff out. It doesn't work for me. Matter of fact, it's just a little bit too bulky, too big. Obviously, you're a lot taller than me. It doesn't work. I'm just going to take my sling with me, all right? And five smooth stones. King's like, hey, you know, I'm really desperate about this thing, David. Go right ahead. At least I got somebody willing to try. I'm scared. The men are scared. But if you're willing to go down there and die, go ahead. I can't even imagine that the king really thought he was going to do it. I don't know what the king was thinking. But anyway, either way, this is a true story. True account, excuse me. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, now here he is on the battlefield. Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied this day. Will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistines arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slung it and smote the Philistine in the forehead that that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. They ran for the hills. You know, when you're facing problems, I'm facing problems. When you're facing difficulties or I'm facing difficulties, we need to face them with conviction. In verse 45, David had some conviction. He saith to that Philistine, he said, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. So, man, I know a God. I am convinced and I have some convictions about this God. He's a big God, a powerful God, an almighty God. And there's nobody and nothing that can stand in his way. You need some convictions like that about the God you serve. And so do I. But not only do we see do we need some conviction, but when we're facing problems and difficulties, we need to face them with confidence. In verse 46 to 47, I want you to note what David says. And it's very important to understand where his confidence is rooted and where it really is grounded. He says, this day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand. That's very important to note. And I will smite thee. Notice he's going to smite him. But it's not till he says the Lord will deliver thee into my hand. And I will smite thee and, thine hand, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day, the fowls of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, that the, all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. He goes on to say, And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. Isn't that wonderful? Notice his confidence. David had tremendous confidence. He was a nobody. He was watching sheep on the backside of the desert for his daddy. He wasn't even old enough to be in the army. And here he is now at war with a giant. He had tremendous conviction. And he had tremendous confidence. He had no doubt in his mind that his God was bigger than Goliath. He had no doubt in his mind that his God would deliver Goliath into his hands. And he says, listen, you're going down, big boy, and there's no doubt about it. i got to believe it was that confidence that inspired Saul, the king. But it wasn't confidence in self, it was confidence in his God that in turn gave him confidence in himself. Finally, courage. We have to face these difficulties and these problems with courage. Verse 48 goes on to say, And it came to pass when the Philistines arose and came and drew nigh to meet David. I love this. Can you imagine this guy? He's almost 10 feet tall. He probably weighs around 600 pounds. He's probably got shoulders at least as broad as mine. Unless I said at least. I mean, this was a big man. A giant of a man, Goliath. 
Some have said, as they break it all down, that literally the spearhead of his spear weighed 30 pounds. Can you imagine that? The head of his spear weighed 30 pounds. Here, let me throw this javelin. 30 pounds, just the head of it. I mean, this was a big, strong man. They've said that his armor weighed over 160 pounds. This was a big man. And here he comes now, off the hillside, into the valley, making his way. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I mean, he's a giant. Here's little David with a sling and five smooth stones. David doesn't go, oh boy, what did I get myself into? No, not David. No, not David at all. He was courageous. David, the Bible says, ran toward the armies of the Philistines. Come on, boy, it's on! Can you imagine that? I can't even fathom that. He took that stone, put it in a sling. He wound up. I don't know if he was running at the time, if he stopped and went. I don't know. It doesn't tell us 100%. What I know is when that stone hit the forehead of that giant, it sunk into his forehead. That's courage. And you know what? If you're going to face difficulties and problems in this Christian life as you serve the Lord, you're going to have to do it with some strength. I'm talking conviction, confidence, and courage. See, what was the outcome of all of this? That David became big man on campus? That he got to carry around the head of Goliath for a while? That he was considered to be an up-and-coming star? No. No. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. For His glory. And every time that you or I strive with strength, it's for His glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. See, service is something that God has called all of His children to do. And if we hope to serve for His glory, we need to serve with a smile. We need to suffer with a song. We need to strive with a strength. Let's go ahead and put our Bibles away as we're finished. We'll close this down. But I want everyone to be able to focus for just a few moments as we close the service. If you're a child of God today, you have a choice to make in service. You can serve out of duty or you can serve out of delight. But either way, God intends and expects us to serve. I hope you choose to serve with delight. I hope that you serve with a smile. I hope you suffer with a song. I hope you strive with strength. But let me ask you today, maybe you're here and you've never even 
considered a relationship with Jesus Christ. I wonder, have you entered into that relationship with Him? It's important. Have you settled your soul's salvation? That's the first thing that needs to be settled today. Don't ever try, don't ever try and serve God in order to earn His favor. That won't work. See, your efforts, as noble as they may be, are not enough. And neither are mine. As a matter of fact, the best that a man or a woman can give God is filthy at best. You say, what? Yeah, the Bible. Remember the Bible is true? The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I mean, the very best we can do is tainted with our sin. The very best we can do is like a filthy rag in the sight of a holy, perfect God. God loves you today. And he wants to receive you. And he wants to reward you for your efforts. But his hands are tied because of your sin today. You must first confess your sin to him. Then repent of it before he can receive any of your works or efforts. See, it begins with a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The Christian life isn't a set of rules and regulations. It is a relationship that we have the privilege of enjoying. See, serving God is what we do because we have already secured Him and are secure in Him. Because I'm already His child. Because I've already been forgiven. Because I've already received a home in heaven. That's why I serve Him. Not to earn His favor. But because I already have it in Christ Jesus. So don't try and win God's favor by impressing Him. Simply confess your sin to Him. Believe that His sacrifice on the cross is enough. Allow His shed blood and His resurrection to be your payment for sin. And then just ask Him to save you. Lord, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve the time of day My heart is so wicked and sinful. God, I try my best to be good, but down deep, every time I do, I know I fail you. I need you to forgive my sin, to come into my life, save my soul, be my Savior. I'm believing that your blood, your sacrifice is enough. I'm trusting you to get me there one day, to heaven. It's that simple if you mean it from the heart. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts, that, Lord, you'd move in our lives. Lord, today we've spoken to both those who have already entered into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, those that have already received and accepted Him as Savior, that have made a conscious decision to trust and to depend upon Him, His shed blood, to forgive their sin and to take them to heaven. And then, Lord, we've spoken to others that have yet to do so. Father, may the believer today, those that have already placed their trust in you, may they serve you with a delightful spirit. May they delight in serving today for your glory. Help them, Father, if they don't wear a smile, to make a decision today to say, I'm going to do 
my best to consider how I really look to others. And I'm going to go ahead and put a smile on my face the best I can so that others can see Jesus better in me. Lord, there may be others who are struggling and suffering. May they say, I want to suffer with a song. Others that are striving and say, I want to stand strong, I want to strive strong. Father, but those that are lost today, that have yet to receive Christ, may they settle it before it's too late. May they make a conscious decision to ask your forgiveness, to invite you into their life, to accept your shed blood as payment for their sin, and to begin a life anew and afresh with you in their heart. Father, we'll thank you, praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.